James chapter 1, verses 22 through 27. And it was last week uh, we looked at uh, the three verses uh, previous to this, and James was talking about uh, being slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen, which I know we're all already good at. This week we continue on with what James is talking about there and how it is that once we've heard, we put what we hear into action. So there, James chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We are in James continuing, as Matt said, and we're, uh, we're talking this week about this idea of being someone who listens to the word, hears the word, and actually does what it says. Um, man, when I think about this idea of listening and not doing, uh, boy, oh boy, the examples from life, you know, they just abound. And I thought about talking about my kids because I've got one or two examples of this stage of development called selective hearing um, that never seems to kind of go away and uh, our actual experience with selective hearing first happened when we had dogs as our sort of pre-kids uh, where we learned how to take care of something you know keep it alive and uh, and sure enough like with our with our with our dog like we uh, we the veterinarian or somebody told us at one point uh, yeah, they go through this phase where people think they are deaf because they don't acknowledge you for a while. And, uh, and it's like puppy adolescence. They just go, nah, I hear you, but nah, I don't really care, you know. And, uh, and then they kind of get over it. So we're like, oh, that's interesting. And, and believe it or not, kids have been known to do that at times. But honestly, I, I think a lot about myself when I was a kid because I don't think I was a particularly easy kid to, uh, to live with. Uh, or to kind of deal with. And I was thinking about this time that we were at Disneyland. I, I grew up in Southern California, went to Disneyland about once a year. And, you know, we crammed it all into like that one day. And um, this one time we went when I was around like maybe late elementary school, my, I remember we walked into the kind of Main Street area and it was me and my sister and my mom and my aunt. And my mom said, okay, that's the city hall. She said, how about this, guys? If, any, if we get separated, if anybody gets kind of lost or anything, go to the city hall, the town hall, and uh, that's where we'll, we'll find you, okay? I said, okay, that sounds good. And then we went out and you know, had fun for the day and then went to, like I think, Fantasmic or some kind of show. And then after the show was over, uh, it was just, I mean, so many people packed in this one spot and everyone just like bolts out of there to get to like rides and stuff. And I, I get turned around. I'm probably chasing a butterfly or something. And I... All of a sudden realized I don't know where my mom and my sister are. Don't know where they are. And to be honest, I hadn't actually been paying attention when my mom said what we should do when we get lost. Um, I mean, to be fair, I had just walked into Disneyland. But um, I, what I did remember thinking was, okay, what do I do? What do I do? Um, what did they say? Uh, oh, people, I've heard, I think I remember something about how when you get lost, you're supposed to stay put. 
just stay in one place. And don't just walk all around because then you know how you find each other, right? So I thought, okay, but I don't really want to stand here for like a really long time. There's not that much fun stuff right here. So I thought, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Star Tours, which is a ride that had just opened. And it's got a really pretty long line. Most of it's outside. So I'll go get in line and uh, wait for them there. And, uh, and I'll kind of keep, you know, I kind of crane my neck. There's a lot of craning of my neck. I was responsible. And I was like, you know, I'm going to find them. And then when they find me, I'll be like, get in line. Look, here we are. I made the best use of this time. Look at how wise our son is. But, um, I, I, you know, I couldn't really find them. And uh, after about an hour of being in line, it got to the point where it was really crunch time because we were going in the sort of Star Tours facility. Now the rest of the line was gonna be indoors. And I was like, you know, it feels like the chances of finding them in here are gonna be even less than finding them, them seeing me out there. So what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? Okay, you know what, I'm gonna be responsible. Now that I think about it, I feel like she may have said something about Town Hall. So then I left and I went and found my family. And uh, my mom said to me something that day that she will, would say to me so many times, after that, what were you thinking? And uh, that statement is not like intended uh, in like a mean-spirited way by most parents. It's usually just sort of a declaration to the universe. Like, what were you thinking? What were they thinking? I just want to understand how this even happened in your mind to make sense, right? Um, well, you guys just heard it and it made sense, right? Star Tours, makes sense. Um, this, this, idea of, uh, you know, we, we listen and we hear things, but we don't actually do these things, even though it seems like we may have understood them. I think we all know that we do that. I think we all know that we're prone to that at times. And James is talking about something that's uh, not uh, specific to just one group of people. But one of the things that you recognize here is uh, as, he, as he addresses it, he does so in this, uh, this, with this illustration that is so memorable that it sticks in all of our minds right away. And it's this idea of looking in a mirror and what we do when we walk away from it. Uh, he says here that, uh, that there are these two kinds of people. There are people who uh, do the word and people who just listen to it, who just hear it. And uh, those who uh, are the doers of the word are the ones that he would say, look in a mirror and walk away and remember what they see. So, so the bad example is the one he gives first. And he says, this person looks into a mirror and they uh, walk away and immediately forget what it is that they see. Now, uh, you'll notice he says uh, that they uh, look intently at their natural face in a mirror, right? Okay, that's interesting, right? Uh, they look intently. Now, the reason he says looks intently is because, uh, you know, specifically what he's saying here is this is not kind of a, you know, you pass by a window and you, you kind of catch yourself and, you know, hey, hey there, remember, forgot about you for a second. Or, you know, you're in the bathroom walking by, you know, the, the mirror, hypothetically, you didn't wash your hands, let's say, and, and you're walking by, uh, you kind of glance at yourself. That's, that's not really looking very intently. He's saying, no, 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 I'm talking about a person who actually looks in a mirror, and the purpose of it is they want to see their face, their natural face, and they want to see something there. Now, why would somebody do that? Well, it's simple, so that you can make sure that there's nothing bad or weird going on here, so that your appearance looks okay, and then you can go away, and you could be socially acceptable for another day. Uh, 
But this person uh, sees something probably, and they go away, and then they just forget. Like, you know, someone sees them later on, and they're like, oh, you need to take care of something. They're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Well, I did look in the mirror. I totally forgot about it. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you go to the mirror for the purpose of making sure you look fine, see something that probably needs to be corrected, and then walk away and forget about it? That just seems crazy. He's not talking about, like, you know, a person... He's not talking about like a, like a mirror, mirror on the wall kind of thing, you know? Like, you know, you look in the mirror and you get lost in it and you're thinking about like deep things about... about. No, he's saying like this person is looking at themselves and they want to see what's going on in there. It's, it's interesting when you think about like mirrors as, you know, all of what could be tied up in that because uh, there are some who are haunted by mirrors. I almost just said literally haunted by mirrors. Then I was like, wait a second. That's an example when you don't use the word literally. So there you go. I just, but then I did it anyway. Uh, I don't know. Maybe people are literally haunted by mirrors. I'm sure it's happened. I I don't know if it's happened. I shouldn't say that. I can get in trouble. I I didn't say that either. Okay. We're going to edit that out and we're going to reset. There are many who And many of us know what it feels like to look into a mirror to physically see something in ourselves and then be haunted by that thing. And by haunted, I mean you go away and you cannot stop thinking about what you have seen. You look in the mirror and you say, I don't like how I look. I don't like what I see. I don't like what I think people are going to see. And you cannot stop thinking about it. You're fixated on it. And it isn't because you're the most vain person ever. It's because what you see when you look in the mirror is your insecurities. You see the things that you don't want to see. You wish more than anything that you could change what you're looking at. Now, there are some who feel that way about themselves internally, and when you look at yourself in the mirror, that's how you feel. But this, uh, this act of looking at yourself, your reflection, is something that I have learned has a lot more power than you first think in life when you just look in a mirror to see what you look like. There's a lot tied up in it, and it is very difficult to go away and to forget what you see and what you look like, especially if what you've encountered in that mirror really has an impact on you or affects you. What he says in the contrast to this person is the one who looks into the perfect law And being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts will be blessed in his doing. Now, you know the thing where, you know, I say this word means this, this word means this, and sometimes you're going, does it really matter that much? Like, did this person really write with, like, this specific thing in mind when they said that word versus this word? In this case, you see a great example of that. James, in the one passage, in the very same place, talking about people doing the very same thing, uses the word looks in one instance, and the word looks in another instance, they're totally different words. The second time when he says looks into the perfect law, that word, that phrase is only used to describe when you gaze into something. That's why he says looks into the perfect law. And when I say gaze into, usually they're talking about into a body of water. So you are gazing into something that you see that is, that is beautiful, but there's also something about that that you can see a little bit reflected back at you, right? 
This is the truth of every Disney princess. You know, you gaze into this body of water and you can then be changed to learn something about yourself, sing a song and go about solving all your problems. But you have to gaze into this thing first, right? Some of you have gazed into the eyes of people that you are deeply in love with. Gazing, it implies that the object is worth looking into because of its beauty and its goodness. And he's saying, the one who has this true faith, who is a hearer and a doer, they, as they look into the word, they see the inherent value of it and the beauty of it as they're also seeing what it says about them, what it shows them about themselves. It doesn't mean that you're in love with yourself. I'm, you know, apologize if that's what you're hoping it says. What it means is that this person gazes in, they see this beauty and something about it, they go away and they act differently. Now, he goes on to talk about what a religious person will do, how somebody will act and live if they're religious. But this part right here, this mirror thing that James has just talked about, you have to stop for a second and ask yourself this question. It's a question I've been asking myself since beginning to go through James this time. And it's basically, what is it that would cause him to say this thing? What is it that would make him tell these people something to address something when if you're the kind of person who would look at a mirror and forget what it shows you, why in the world would you pay any attention to what James is saying right now? Okay, It's like preaching to the choir, the definition of it. Uh, or, uh, so you're either the kind of person who is going to look in the mirror, forget what it says, go away. In which case, you're going to look at what James is saying, you're going to forget what he says, and you're going to walk away. Or, you're the kind of person who cares about these things and wants to live these things out and wants to do these things. And so, you're going to look in the mirror, and if you see something, you're going to apply it. And so, you're going to pay attention to what James says, which you don't need to pay attention to. Because you already are doing the thing that James is talking about, right? Uh, why is he making it a point to talk about this? James uh, is the leader of this movement called Christianity that we call Christianity at this time. And as he's looking at the church, he is seeing a problem, an epidemic that he is addressing constantly. There are two assumptions that he's making about the people that he's writing to. The first one is this. The assumption is that there were enough people in the church who were in the habit of hearing the word and not living it out that James had to bring it up. So he was looking at the church saying, because uh, uh, this is a ridiculous example, right, of a person who would do something like this, see something in the mirror, walk away, forget about it. And yet he start, he's pretty early in his letter with it. Why? So he feels that there's a problem in the church. Now, we often view the early church as this very idealistic place. We think, you know, it must have been so pure and great in the beginning, and it's only probably been corrupted since then, and if only we could get back to that way. But James is saying, he's talking to a group of people, and he's saying to them, he, he recognizes, you guys have a problem, and the problem that you have is that enough of you are paying attention and hearing, you're showing up at these house churches, you're hearing the communication of God's word, and you're just walking away not doing anything about it. There's enough of you doing that that I have to address it because it's a big enough epidemic. In fact, there were enough that he made it in the entire theme of his letter to them. Now, you still stop and go, but that doesn't mean that that's true now. That means that that was true then. Well, as a pastor in the church now, I can tell you that from the very beginning of trying to think about other people growing in the faith and not just myself, I began to experience this truth. 
And it became sort of an assumption about how ministry works, especially in a country like ours where there's not a tremendous amount of persecution for being a Christian, saying that you're a Christian. What I began to realize early on was uh, there are a lot more people that will uh, listen and hear than there are people who will do these things that they hear about and read about. And if I don't operate under that assumption, I'm going to be pretty naive in how I approach people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think a lot of things that probably aren't true and aren't happening in people's lives. This very same problem is a temptation in the church today. Now, part of the reason that this is so true of us now, so difficult, is that uh, we have a tendency to uh, model the way we live things out um, around the way people around us do, uh, our peers. We look at everybody around us and we go, well, how are you all applying this stuff? Okay, it doesn't seem to be that extreme in your lives, then I'm okay in it not being an extreme part of my life, maybe. We said last week that um, the, you know, in this parable of the sower that Jesus talks about, that there's a hard soil, one that the seed gets planted in and it just gets, sits there on the top and then a bird comes and eats it away, the rocky soil. And uh, what we said about that was our assumption is that that hard, rocky soil is, is way far away from the church, from the preacher. But in reality, uh, it's, it's the ground underneath their feet that is the hardest, the one that they tread on back and forth with the, with the message. And is that not so true in the church? It is indeed true that for many, the hardest soil um, comes in the hearts of the people who hear the word again and again and again and again and again and again and again, become inoculated to the word, and then it just bounces right off. It doesn't really occur that it's supposed to sink in and to actually change you every time you encounter it. I'll give you an example of this. I, I love a pastor named Francis Chan. How many of you guys have ever heard of a pastor named Francis Chan? All right, okay, good. Then I'm going to talk about him like you kind of know who he is. Um, and the fact that that many people and almost everybody in the first service had heard about him gives you an indication of the fact that he's a pretty well-known pastor. Now, uh, the biggest reason I like Francis Chan is because even though there's a lot of pastors out there who are well-known through writing and teaching kind of worldwide, he is one that I happen to know is the real deal, as you would say. He lives out what he teaches. And it's evident in the things that he communicates and the way he teaches. He's given away 90% of what he's made since the beginning of his ministry, back when he was like barely able to feed his kids and was a, was a poor young uh, husband and father, starting then gave away 90% of what he earned and lived off the other 10 and uh, continues to do so now that he's like a successful author and speaker. Uh, he, uh, he moved out of his house and into a much smaller house, moved out of one that five, seven people could live in into one that seven people probably shouldn't live in. And a lot of his Christian friends told him this isn't wise, this isn't good, but he felt that he had to keep being able to give away more money than he was living on. And so he did it and, and admire him for this. He left a successful ministry that was built on his gift of teaching the word to go to the inner city of San Francisco and disciple people who didn't care who he was, where he had no name that had been developed and no reputation. Uh, he, uh, 
And I've had so many people, I've been given so many clips of Francis Chan sermons by people, you know, like, go watch this and hear what he says and look what he does. And, and, and I'm like, yes, yes, I watch it. And, 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 and it's like so, he's so passionate, you know, he's so, so convicted. And, and uh, I've read so many books and I've been given so many books. I've had so many conversations with people where his words and his lifestyle, they come up as proof of what it looks like to really live for Jesus, especially in kind of a suburban culture where, uh, you know, it's, I don't know, like, got its own way of doing that. And he's got this ability to boldly say the very things that Jesus said and to do the radical things that Jesus did, and yet people still want to hear more. They want to hear more of what he has to say. They want to, they want to show up again and listen to these things that he's going to challenge them with. And yet I can count... On one hand, the number of times that I have done anything that Francis Chan has said to do. Like, I think about it and I go, no, I don't know that I've done these things that he talks about, that I, that I, that I, that I think are so incredible and passionate and radical. I love hearing them. Somebody's like, watch this clip where he talks about the desperate need for people to enter the mission field. It's so powerful. And I'm like, yeah, that is. This is really good. I pass it along to somebody else. At no point do I go, yeah, so are you going to become a missionary? And just, listen, just watch it. Just watch it. It's, like, really powerful. And then I watch it, and I pass it on to somebody else. It's like, you know, you know listen to the, read this story about how he gives, still gives away 90% of his income. It's so inspiring. It's so convicting. I'm like, oh, my gosh, it is. It's so inspiring and convicting. I love his passion. And pass it on to somebody else. I'm not going to give away 90% of my income. You look at the sermon. He talks about downsizing his house and what people say to him and how hard that ends up being in his life. You've got you to gotta check this out. You've got to tell somebody this really great example, really good thing. Yes, absolutely, pass it along. No way I'm downsizing my house. Did you hear about how he left his church? He, he went to this inner city ministry because he believed that a church with thousands and thousands and thousands of people couldn't possibly do the thing that God was calling the church to do, or at least him to do. Yes, absolutely, it's so good. Anyway, I'm struggling with my church because I just feel like it's not a perfect fit for me personally, and I'm not being fed there, and I'm not getting what I want out of there. But man, I love that thing that he says about going to the inner city and being for other people. The reason we love Francis Chan, the reason that we love people like him, these amazing communicators who speak with passion, they pull things out of the word they, that we never knew was theirs because, number one, they make it so easy to listen to the word. I'm not saying he is waters down. I'm not saying that it, what he's doing is bad, again. But with the skill and the ability that someone like that has, the passion that they have, uh, they, it's, it's actually it's easier to, to hear it and take it in, or to hear it and just think about it, and to, to feel passionate as you're, as you're encountering it, and to want to come back and be challenged by it again. Remember the day that a, a, a buddy let me borrow an iPod shuffle with... Uh, like hundreds of Mark Driscoll sermons on it. And he's this great Bible teacher, and I just ate these things, and I was listening to him left like all over the place all the time, and I loved him. I loved how relatable he was. I loved how plain-spoken he was. I loved his ability to say complex things in easy ways. I loved how practical he was. If you know anything about Mark Driscoll and his ministry, he was asked to step down from his ministry a few years ago from this massive church. And the reason wasn't because he had an affair. It wasn't because he stole money from the church. It was simply because he had had this pattern of behaving as a pastor that didn't really line up with the way that Jesus 
led. There, there wasn't any humility. There was too much uh, control and too much brashness and too much sometimes even almost manipulation of other people and getting things. And, and the end always kind of justified the means, so it was okay. And the crazy thing about it when you, when you hear these accounts in the stories are how long people would sort of tolerate that. Why? Because of this amazing gift of teaching, because this amazing gift of the ability to make it so enjoyable to hear the word, to take it in more and more and more. You see, what James is saying to the church is that you guys are coming to these house churches. You're listening to the teaching of the word. You're hearing it and you're enjoying that experience, but that's not what matters. You have to go away, and you have to actually be changed by it. And I think that rather than say, oh, that would never happen, because look, here we are. Or you might even say, I love a good sermon, and I really enjoy some of these great preachers, and I really enjoy some of these books, and I really enjoy being convicted by the word. Um, uh, at the same time, it might feel impossible for you to actually encounter the word for yourself without a mediator, somebody in between. Or you might think, is it, or I might say, is it possible that the, the enjoyment you find, the passion that you get out of that, uh, that that might still be a case of enjoying the hearing of the word, the taking in of the word, right? Because I, you can't ever have enough, right? You can't ever have too much, right? It's not like you can know so much uh, and, uh, and that can be bad for you unless you read James. And he starts talking about how much we do versus the things that we know. And again, I'm not, I'm not indicating in any way that people who are good at teaching the Bible are in some way bad or wrong for anything or anyone. It's our tendency to flock to that kind of thing. I, I try as hard as I can to not make this an issue here by just not, you know, preaching pretty good sermons. But, you know, sometimes it gets through. You know, I try to make them long. I try to make them confusing. And, uh, and, and hopefully you'll, you'll walk away and you'll go, man, somehow, aside from all the stuff that that guy did to make it hard, you know, to, to listen and pay attention. But this still tends to happen. The second assumption that James has, not, the first one is that this is an epidemic in his church that he has to talk to these people about this issue of hearing and not doing. The second one is that he's presuming that there are people who want to do the right thing, but they don't know how. And that gives us hope. He's communicating this, right? And I said before, like, why, what is the good of James? I've been asking myself that recently. What is, I, I know you're like, well, maybe you shouldn't ask that question. Well, anyway, I ask it and I go, what is the value of James if he's talking about sincerity to people who aren't sincere, maybe. It, either I care, and now I'm going to care more, but I already cared, or I don't care, and now I'm not going to pay attention to it. Because James believes that there are people who do want to live this thing out well. But there is confusion as to what that looks like. And so he, he clarifies it for them. He goes on and says to them, this is what it looks like to be religious. If anyone thinks he's religious... That person bridles their tongue, and they don't deceive their hearts. Otherwise, their religion's worthless. This word religion, we hear like, oh, that's a bad word, especially in Jesus' time, you know. No, this word religion, you, it means devout. 
He's, he's saying a person who is devout, who is serious about this, who wants it to infuse the way that they live their life. Okay, a person who does that, first and foremost, will have a bridled tongue. Now, there is, in the coming weeks, we're going to be able to see these things that James says about the tongue and the things we say, and it is such, like, it's really, really good. But he describes it as being like this sort of untamed wild animal that has to be bridled. Now, bridling something doesn't mean you stop it. It doesn't mean you stop it from doing anything. In fact, you, you bridle something to make it, channel it, and make it more constructive. But what he's saying here, pure religion, this true religion is, is the first step, he says, is this person's just going to, they're going to tame their tongue, the words that are coming out of their mouths. They're going to, they're going to not let their heart be deceived. They're going to actually want to change their heart. Here again, we have to remember that James, so James isn't talking here about using bad words, and foul language and making dirty jokes. That's actually not what he means in this context by taming your tongue. What he's talking about is he's addressing, once again, the the tendency of this group of people to say Christian things, to say religious things, and to make statements about what they believe and who they are without actually living those things out. He says, uh, you guys have this tendency, I'm going to keep coming back to it, of thinking that it's what you say that makes you productive. Rather, I think you should bridle that, and I think that you should focus on these other things. These people are making big statements. They're making big claims. They're boastful and they're proud. They talk of loving people. They talk about wanting to know Christ, but then when it comes time to live this out, they don't do it. Their words count for nothing because they have no actions to back them up. And before we beat up on these people too much, keep in mind, they were persecuted for even saying they were Christians. So in their mind, they're like, listen, okay, when we said we were Christians, all the Roman people hated us because they thought we were, they thought we were atheists. Uh, the people, secular Romans thought that the Christians were atheists because they didn't make, a te- make an idol to their God physically, so, and they only had one God. So they thought that basically meant, you know, they were like, it's a slippery slope. We know where they're going. We're pretty smart. They don't really believe in God at all. They're going to get there soon. So not only were they ostracized by all these people who were non-religious, but they were misunderstood. Can you imagine what that'd be like to be, to be persecuted, compromised, and misunderstood for the reasons that you're being persecuted for and pushed aside? Then you had the Jewish people, that they grew up in this faith, This was a huge community that was everything in their lives for most of them. They were ostracized by the Jews. Why? Because they thought they were heretics and they're ruining the faith. So when you say, I'm a Christian, with your words, persecution comes. And so in their mind, in their world, the most important thing was saying, I'm a Christian. Simply confessing it, professing it with your mouth. And what James is saying to them is he's saying... But that's not ultimately what makes you a person of faith. So even though that's a challenge now, even though that's something that says something to the people out there, in here, and between you and God, what ultimately makes this faith a real one is the actions that you have and the way that you live. It isn't just, and honestly, what it probably was, was it was that they did this thing we tend to do. They, they lower the bar to... The, the minimum requirement, right? They go, well, here it's pretty clear. 
If the, you say you're a Christian, then you're part of that group. But that's all you have to do. You just talk about it. You, you say it. What he essentially is saying to these people is that true religion is actions over words. It is not saying that words don't matter. He's saying that ultimately this true religion is your actions over the words. And by words, he's not saying using appropriate language and things like that. He's saying it's actions over your statements about what you believe. You see this all throughout the Bible. This idea that rather than be a person who says you're going to do something and then doesn't do it, rather than being a person who says you believe something in a big impressive way and then shows that really your life doesn't look like that at all, live that thing out. Do that thing before you think about just telling everyone about it. He goes on and says that religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To be sincere in a life for Christ is to give of yourself to the people who are in need. It is to be there for the people who have no one to provide for them. Widows and orphans in this culture, they were the people who had lost the people that were supposed to provide for them and care for them. Uh, to be a widow meant to lose your husband, which meant to lose your source of income and security. You now had no one to depend on. To be an orphan meant that you had lost both your parents and you now really had no one to depend on. This wasn't a time of, of, of government services and, um, and the foster system or, or things like disability. This was a time where you really didn't have much to depend on, if anything at all. And yet what he's saying is he's not even saying go and adopt the orphan, go and bring food to the widow, go and let this person live with you. No, because you know what we could say to that stuff? Well, I mean, I don't have the money, I don't have the resources, I don't have the space in my house. No, what he says is true religion is to go and visit these people. To simply go and give of yourself to these people. Why? Because and we see it today. You can provide every physical, material need that a person has, and they can still be completely alone. And they can still be completely without the encouragement that comes from someone saying to them, God loves you. God is here with you and cares for you. And we see it all the time. You can provide for a young person in the foster system to have um, every physical need met in a group home. And yet, they won't ever be able to experience the love of a parent or someone who says, I'm here for you no matter what. What James says is very simple. He's not saying, and why, you know, widows and orphans, it's pretty specific, you know? Well, that makes it a little hard to be like, you know, well, I, I mean, there are obviously people who are called to go spend time with widows and orphans and those who have no one else. I have been called to, uh, to go to the wealthy because, you know, no one really thinks about them. And I've been called to go to people that have lots of people around them. And I've been called to go to people who happen to just be exactly like me in every way and I really enjoy. And I happen to be called to go to nobody because, I don't know, I, that's the reason why, you know. No, what, what, what he says is that these are the people you go to. Why? Because one, uh, they're the ones in need. Two, this gives nothing back to you. You just give. A person who truly understands and applies 
even the most basic aspect of God's word, will recognize that they are called to just give to others and not ask to receive something in return. And you're, you're even called to do it without getting credit for it much of the time, right? I mean, how hard would that really be to give of yourself, to visit those that are isolated and in need, not expecting to get something in return, not getting any credit, no one ever knowing how much you were blessed by getting to do it. What he's saying here is that true religion is two things. It is mercy and it is purity. Because he talks about being undefiled, unstained by the world. Now, we have a tendency to pick one or the other extreme. We say what it means to be holy and to do what the Bible says is to protect myself and my life from any negative outside influence that might cause me to sin. Purity. And because purity is the most important thing, I'm probably going to isolate myself. I'm not going to be around a lot of people that are in great need. I'm going to be around other people that care more than anything about purity. And that's going to become a smaller and smaller group because you're not talking about just all the followers of Jesus. You're talking about all the followers of Jesus that understand purity to be a specific thing and that are in your area and that are like you, usually. And so the decision to say true religion is more than anything purity often causes us to ignore other people completely because we think focusing on others, I got to focus on me all the time and what I do and what I think and how I act. But the other tendency is to say, oh, God cares so much about these other people and the problems in their life. He doesn't care about all these little details of the things I think and the things I do and the way I live. No, no, no. Really, what matters is that I'm making myself available to help others and fix the real major problems in this world. But true religion, according to James is to go into the world, to go and to give of yourself to others, and to do it in a way that leaves you unstained. He is not saying separate yourself from the world for the sake of your purity. But he's also not saying go to others, and regardless of what that does to you, don't worry so much about the way that you live and the way that you act. One of the things that we've done, um, or has kind of just happened, is as we've been going through James, um, I think uh, some of the pastors and I, we, we've recognized that one of the best things to do is just as early in the week as we can, sit down with like a scripture journal or something and just, just do a devotional on that passage of James that we're on that coming week. And rather than begin by thinking about, you know, all of the things that are interesting about it and that you could teach about it and things like that, um, maybe what God specifically even has to say to our church or anything like that, just to think, okay, me, if I look into this thing and I think about it, I was talking to Pastor Matt on Tuesday, and um, he, uh, he, was, he was basically saying that when he, when he read through this passage and he got to this sort of unstained, undefiled thing, he was thinking a lot about that, and, um, you know, because he's very pure and undefiled. And uh, he was thinking, like, 
you know, why don't we do this? Why, why does this even have to be in here? And what keeps us from, you know, you know what, what is it that makes people focus so much? I think what we were both talking about was that we have a tendency, I think, in, in churches, I don't know, like, like a lot of churches that we have been in at least, to focus on the purity side of things over the mercy side of things much of the time. Why do we do that? What do we see as the, as the risk? And he was saying that it's this feeling that if I go out, that I am at risk somehow and that my purity might be compromised. And he said, but it's so crazy that we think that because I was thinking, he was thinking about uh, Jesus's words to Peter when he begins the church. And what he says to him, they give his confidence, he doesn't need to be worried about this. He says this in Matthew 16, he says, Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What he says to Peter from the very beginning of the idea of the church being communicated is that you need to go out with courage, knowing that the gates of hell will not prevail against you as you do this. You will not be overcome by temptation that you may encounter. You will not be overcome by trial or persecution. You can know right now that we are going to win and that the enemy does not have power over you. Like he will even make you want to think. And one of the ways that I think this happens, and it is so effective on, on the enemy's part, is to communicate, I know these people are in need, but if you go out away from spending so much time focusing on your own purity, then think about all of the sin that's going to creep into your life. Think about all the temptation, right? When I think about what it means to raise children who are followers of Jesus, I have to confess, I often find myself thinking about those children being people who are able to repeat back things that I've said to them or, or things that they've been taught, like, like to say and to believe the right things. But then also to, I, I think of that as a, a child who abstains from things. They're, they're, they're known more for not doing the bad things other kids do than they are for doing good things. And uh, obviously, we're not supposed to be works-based in, our, in, our, in, our, in, our, in this idea of the gospel and even being a part of God's kingdom, but how easy is it to often think that the mark of a Christian, if it is going to be the way that we live, if we are going to be known as being different, then it should probably be our abstinence from things that others do more even than the things that we do that brings mercy. Now, am I saying that abstinence from things is wrong? No, because James says, you are to go out and to be undefiled. What I'm saying is that it's possible that we might not have the courage that Jesus wants us to have in going out and the confidence that this won't happen just because we're going out to others. We're bringing them God's mercy because of how much they need it. We are prone to read the word first and to then look around at other people second and to say, what would the majority of people do with this? And if that in any way waters down what we've read, we're usually pretty happy about that. In fact, the reason why everybody loves Francis Chan is because he doesn't do that. It's because it's an example of a person who reads the word and says, this is what my life has to look like. We're compelled by it. We pass it along to one another as we continue to not do the things that we hear. We like certain teachers because they reinforce our particular perspectives, our priorities, our values. They care about some of the same things that we care about. And so we like hearing God's word from them. It's an enjoyable process for us. The hearing is not that hard, but the doing can be a real challenge. 
As we think about what this looks like, I think one of the simplest things, well, there's two, really. One, go and visit with the widows and with the orphans. There is no elaborate application for that point. Go find those who are in need of other people's time. Rather than go doing door-to-door evangelism, we'll just, just go door-to-door and see if there's a lonely person. This, this doesn't, okay. Why, listen to the podcast. We'll, we'll flush it out more there. Um, also, is it any more complicated than saying, can I sit down with God's word without any kind of a filter with it? Can I maybe for a period of time put down a devotional that I might use, some other resources that I might have, things that I find that I really relate to or resonate with, but that also will filter the things I hear through the, the teaching, the opinions, the, the sometimes the, the watering down of another person. I can't tell you how many times I've read through like a devotional and it says like, now, as most of us know, this passage can't apply to our lives in the way Jesus originally did it or something, and then they'll go on to explain how I can feel better in my day. So the simplest thing might be to sit down with God's word and say, can I like, gaze into this mirror, and can I do it and see what truth he has for me with nothing else in between? Uh, James is not saying, I want you guys to try harder. He is saying, I want us all to agree on what it means to be good. What it means to try. He's not saying you have to all be better people because that would be legalistic. He's saying we don't agree on what it means to be a good person. We don't agree on what it means to follow what Jesus said. So let's start there and with the basics. If you want to know what it means... Don't think it just means your words. It means your mercy towards others, and it means your purity in your life. The moment that we try to do this, we realize how bad we are at it and that we will fail, and that's the reason why Jesus came, why he died on the cross, and why we know that it's through that power. It's the only way that we can have any part in God's kingdom. We're going to take communion after this, and Pastor Matt's going to come up, and he's going to lead us through that, but it is the perfect way to spend time in reflection as we worship. Not in reflection and worship thinking, okay, this is it, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna be better, I'm gonna try harder, I'm gonna do more, I'm gonna really be a religious person, a devout person. But rather that we start by saying, it's because of what Jesus did that I experience the gratefulness that I have and it is out of my gratefulness that I say, God, how can I live this thing out?